Welcome to Studying the Song, a podcast to help musical theater actors figure out what to sing and how to sing it so that you shine in your audition, one-woman show, or leading role. My friends, talent and passion are only the beginning. I believe there is freedom in preparation. I believe that when you put in the work, practice the skills, and do the research, something amazing happens. You become so prepared in your craft that you become unstoppable. In this podcast, I want to give you the tools and skills to create a powerful audition book that showcases your artistry and actually gets you work. I want you to feel totally at home reading the musical score of a show, and I want to help you define your unique artistic voice. Consider me your own personal vocal coach in your earbuds, cheering you on and bringing you the reality checks you need along the way. I'm Corey Yamaoka, and I'm so excited to be walking this journey with you. Let's dive in. Hello, and welcome back to Studying the Song. I am Corey Yamaoka, your host, and today I have a very special guest with me, my good friend, Catherine Lounsbury. Welcome. Thank you, Corey. And I would also like to say welcome from a friend. If my piano. If you didn't guess from the title of this podcast that you clicked on, we're going to be talking about audition horror stories today. And, you know, this podcast is really about how not to have horror stories happen to you. And it's like we spend so much time preparing and learning how to talk to an accompanist and trying to be ready for whatever might be thrown at us in the audition room. But no matter how hard you prepare, no matter what level, like you could be at the peak professional level, right? On Broadway doing auditions and shit still happens. And that's what today is all about is sort of celebrating that and thinking, what can we learn from this? And also what can we just accept like that this is going to happen? What are your thoughts, Catherine? Well, I mean, I think that's what makes performance thrilling, but also terrifying, right? Mm -hmm. Because as you said, you you could play a, a piece on the piano, right? 1,000 times, and then your performance is the thousandth and one. I wanted to say thousandth and oneth. <laughs> and that could be the one that that goes horribly wrong. But I think as performers, we might feed off of that too a little bit. It's kind of thrilling to be on stage and sometimes just know like this might be the day something happens. Like sometimes you can predict it, you know, you're like, I'm feeling a little <laughs> wild today. I don't feel as focused as I should. Or sometimes you can't predict it and then it happens. You're like, all right, this was the day. I guess the rest of the performance can't be as bad as what just happened. You're like, all right, right. that's what today is. You also kind of never know what's going to be thrown at you. So like my, this is a long time ago now, but one of my first things I ever did in grad school was I had to play for auditions for the opera program. Mm. And I, you know, I had been accompanying singers for a while. I I knew a lot of the repertoire, but this guy brings in a Russian aria. Now, I would be able to tell you what the aria was had the score been in English, but it was not. It was in Russian. It had Cyrillic characters. So like literally, I, to this day, have no idea what he's saying. And it was not an easy piece. It was like a very flowy accompaniment. It's like my first time you know, performing in grad school, the whole voice faculty is there because these students are auditioning and I'm playing, I think I'm probably doing a decent job. And then the guy clearly jumps to another section of the piece. 
And normally, right, as collaborative pianists, we, we're like Navy SEALs in that moment. We can look ahead mm -hmm. in the music. We can find them. We keep playing. We know what to do. This was a f literal, figurative, poetic, foreign aria to me. And there was no chance of me finding him, right? And so, I mean, somehow it ended. I think I partially left my body and perhaps even blacked out emotionally. It ends and I just feel, I feel horrible. You know, of course, in the moment, it probably wasn't a big deal. The voice faculty is more listening to the singer than me, but I'm like freaked out. And a couple days later, I see my teacher, who I don't know that well yet, Dr. Alan Smith, who's a phenomenal person. I see him a few days later and I was like, um, did you hear anything about about did you hear about, anything yeah yeah because yeah, I'm like oh clearly this is like you know all the buzz on campus that this new girl Catherine played wrong stuff for 20 seconds um and he was great he's like oh do you think the voice faculty is, is going to get rid of you because you you played something wrong and he was basically like nobody noticed don't worry about it carry on now and it was fine but even though, like, truly, no damage done, that feeling in the moment, because you're also, you know the feeling, you're supporting somebody else's moment. Yeah. And it's all, so it's almost this feeling of, like, the stakes are almost higher for you in a way, because if they mess up, they mess up their own performance. But if you mess up and you mess up their thing, that feels terrible. Oh, and then you're going to be in school with these people, right? So then you're going to be seeing them again and having to play for them again. Like at least when you're just doing auditions for a theater or something, like you might not see that person again for months or a year if they happen to be at another audition that you're playing at. So you can kind of be like, eh, yeah, sorry about that. And then you walk away and you, you like nurse yourself, like, you know, <laughs> you like nurse your wounds, right? <laughs> nurse yourself is sort of a weird analogy, but, but yeah, now you're like the girl in that person's eyes, except that that person knows that they jumped those lyrics. Right. So they've also got to be feeling like, oh, I totally messed this up and my poor pianist had to try to find me. Right. Well, and that's always the other lesson, right? That like nobody's thinking about you as much as you're thinking about you. Yeah. Um, I also remember a time in school. This was my undergrad and it wasn't a full audition. This was a performance. And as you know, as pianists, we have our like woes behind the piano. But have you ever been a page turner for somebody? Oh my God. Honestly, yes. And fills me with terror. Go. Yeah. So, so I was turning pages for one of the faculty members performing his own like jazz piano fantasia with, <laughs> with other instrumentalists. And there was sheet music, but it was all written. And he's sort of like the absent-minded professor. So it was very like sketchy, actually sketchy, like I could kind of follow what was on the page and he's like, I don't know, six and a half feet tall. His fingers are like as long as Edward Scissorhands and you just like this imposing figure at the piano. Right. I just remember staring at that music so hard, hoping to God that I would figure out where he was so I could turn the page without him having to do like the vigorous pissed off head nod. Like, why have you not turned my page yet? And you know, you're sitting right next to them but you're looking at the music really from like, you know, five feet away and you're trying not to hover over their shoulders. So it's one of the most tense things you can do is be a page turner for somebody. I think I made it through okay, but it was like 
an internal horror story, if not an actual like one where something bad happened. It was just a nightmare to be going through it. And I think what's weird about that moment, too, is like, and maybe we need to start a new hashtag like page turners unite, because this is actually a very specific, very terrifying thing that nobody thinks about this this guy so he's a faculty member you know you want to you want to do right by him but you're not even looking at an official score you're just looking at his like chicken scratch yeah oh my god yeah for a piece that nobody's heard like I don't know what to expect I don't even think I was there for a rehearsal it was just sort of like oh professor Thompson needs somebody to come turn pages like he tried to do it didn't happen and now I've got to go in on the day of the performance yes his score is a lord of the rings treasure map good luck I mean, luckily, if it's a Fantasia, he can just, you know, make something up for a little while. He is a, a great improviser. So had that as like a mild safety net, but it was still a horror story for me. Um, Catherine, we're going to be sharing not just our own horror stories from behind the piano or next to the pianist, but also horror stories from singers in musical theater. And um, I want you to start with one story. Like I've actually sent emails to my friends, sent texts and was like, you guys tell me what your horror stories are. Cause I know I've heard you guys like bitch and moan about things that have happened in the past. I put a call out on Instagram and got some really good ones. And the first one that we're going to share is from my friend named Jessica. And would you actually tell this story right now? And what I love about the story before, I'm just going to give part of it away is that this is a New York story. This is not regional theater. This is not Dolly Dinkle's theater, right? It's like in New York, this girl, first time auditioning. All right, let's hear it. Yeah, I feel for Jessica with this one. So so she had a callback for Sandy in Greece at this theater in New York. Um, But at the time, she lived on the West Coast, and she was already in tech for a, a show. So she only had like 36 hours to fly to New York, audition, and then get back home. So very tense, very tense situation. She takes a red eye, not ideal, did not sleep at all on the red eye. And then she had to like navigate the subway from JFK into the city for the first time, like carrying her sweet little roller suitcase. So just lots of hard knocks leading. I can't even imagine. (laughs) Like my heart is racing already. I know. It's not comfortable. So it's her first real audition in New York. And she didn't know about warm-up rooms, like that you could book yourself a warm-up room and and be proper. And so she just like goes into the bathroom at the studio where the auditions are <laughs> happening and she's just warming up in there, which is not comfortable for, for anybody. She gets the audition room and she like tells the monitor, like, I'm here. And the monitor's like, yeah, you don't need to tell me. It's all good. Just go sit and wait. Um, so they finally, they call her in. And they're like, okay, you know, come on in. And she brings everything with her. She brings her book, her sides, and (laughs) this this ever-present roller suitcase (laughs) in the audition room, right? So sweet. So she sings Hopelessly Devoted to You, and it's like it goes really well. They ask her to sing two other songs from her book, which as you – like, that's a good sign. You know, if they want to hear not just one more song but two more songs, like – Yeah, that's really positive. It's good. She's feeling good. So she finishes singing and they tell her to go out out of the room to go prep some sides with one of the guys auditioning for Danny, right? So this is like the John Travolta character, Mm -hmm. right? So the guy shows up. He's dressed exactly like the movie, like the black shirt, the pants, the slick back hair, the works, right? So she's feeling good, you know, and they're preparing that scene at the drive-in where Danny makes a pass at Mm -hmm. Sandy, 
So she's never met this guy, right? But they both really want this part. So they talk it through and they decide that he's going to like feel her up a little and go for a kiss. Like super consensual. They decide this is two actors. But, you know, it gets a little odd, yeah. right? You're with the stranger. Yeah. Yeah. So they rehearse it a few times and then they're called in. Okay. So they get in the audition room. They're doing the scene. And the guy cops a feel one line early. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Which she's already got to feel like nervous about that she's doing this, right? With some stranger. Right. And like, of course, you're just amped up during an audition, right? So like, you know, the adrenaline is flowing. It's hype. So, I mean, and he did, the guy didn't do anything, you know, inappropriate. He did exactly what they talked about, but it totally caught her off guard. She freaks out. I mean, it was like in character, but like it was a legit freak out. It throws them off. They skip some lines. They're just kind of like thrown off their game. Oh. It kind of works out. The people at the table are like, thank you. And then oddly, they ask if she could do an Australian dialect. And she's like, uh, hard no. And then she leaves. So she's feeling like so frazzled. Can you even imagine? Like, I can't. You know, you prep for these auditions and like you put hours and hours in, into it, right? But then you're in the room and it's like, psh, it goes by so fast. So she like leaves because she's member. She's in New York. She's got to get back to the West Coast for her tech rehearsal. So she heads out to the subway. She's got to catch her flight. And then remember her trusty suitcase? Oh. <laughs> That's terrible. It's not with her. Oh, bro. no. <laughs> she doesn't have it. So like it's like, you know, a half hour, 45 minutes after her audition that kind of went awry in the end. She awkwardly has to like walk all the way back plus you know she's like worried about her flight goes back in she has to go into the audition room to get her suitcase it's so awkward and like what I picture I picture like the audition room being so silent and just all you hear are like the wheels like the roll yeah like the roller wheels on the like wooden floor sadly and like I wish I could say that she got the part she did not <sighs> Um, but it's a great story. And like, listen, you got to like rip the bandaid off, right? For that first sort of like New York audition, mm -hmm. right? And she like tried her damnedest to get out there. She like was like, sure, I'm going to audition for this. I'm going to buy the flight. I'm going to figure out how to get to the rehearsal studio I've never been to and do this audition. And I'm going to, you know, improvise with this person doing a little callback and, and put myself out there. And, and then it totally goes awry. Again, it's like when you're working with an accompanist, like two people are performing. And if you might have everything lined up and if the other person messes up, you're like, how do I respond in the moment and make this still work? And then the, the, the roller bag is just like adding insult to injury. Jessica, if you're listening to this, I'm just so sorry that that was your experience, but I know that you are like such a go with the flow person and you don't let anything keep you back. So like you definitely went on more auditions after that. That is the good side of the story. Yeah. I mean, these, these stories in the moment are horrors, but after the fact, they're, they're great stories to tell. They right. Are. And I think he speaks also to like performers, you know, when you're auditioning and you're just a performer in general, you have to be good at improvisation. Well, speaking of improvising, um, we're going to actually share an audio clip of somebody telling their own story. And this is somebody that both Catherine and I know uh, that we worked with at AMDA in Los Angeles. And his name is Tyler. So let me just 
share the story with you from Tyler's own mouth. Hello, it's Tyler Tafoya here. Um, so this is my uh, audition horror story. So I was going into an audition and we needed a monologue. So I prepared a monologue. I was all ready to go. I get there. I find out they wanted a comedic monologue and mine was a little bit more on the dramatic side. So I did the gutsy thing and improved a monologue on the spot. I made it up in the audition room and it was all about me taking care of a pet ant and I gave it a name and talked about what he does all day and what he eats. And then I said, all right, everybody, let's give it a hand. And I pretended to squish it. And I was like, oh, no. And that's how I ended the monologue. Again, I do not recommend it, but that's what I did. Didn't get a call back, but <laughs> I lived to tell the tale. Uh, so, yeah, that's my that's my audition horror story. Hope you all enjoy and have a happy Halloween. Uh, what I love about Tyler is he's actually a writer, right? Like, so he writes musicals and writes lyrics and he is very good at being spontaneous and he has his own like YouTube show and all of this. So of course he's the one that's like, yeah, I can just improv a comedic monologue that'll be good enough rather than sticking with the thing he had prepared and maybe like hoping that they would say, do you have something else or we'll bring you back. You know, like sometimes you just know you have the wrong thing, but that's what you have. So you do it anyway. No, not Tyler. He's like, well, I'm just going to improv something. This story doesn't surprise me at all, but also it is a delightfully surprising story. And that, and that just also speaks to like that, that mystery and wonder, like, did he wake up that day and know he was going to improvise a monologue about an ant Mm -hmm. and then accidentally smush that ant? I think he needs to write a book of monologues because I love that story. And I have a little story that I read to my son that's about these little ants that help out a snail. And I was thinking, yeah, there's definitely a world of like animal comedic monologues that needs to be explored. And maybe he's the one to do it. I'll get back to him on that. But um, just brave. I think it's brave to come in and say, that's not at all what I have. I don't have anything else that is appropriate So here we go, y'all. I'm just going to riff on it for you live. Well, and I feel like also if I had been behind that table, I would have been like, this is somebody that would be great in the room. You know, he's clearly like, you know, a a reliable guy who can think on his feet. But like it really speaks also to the kind of preparation performers need to have, Mm -hmm. right? Like you can wake up in the morning and not know what the day holds for you. And like one of our stories... Um, Brian's story. You know the one I'm talking yeah. about. <laughs> Why don't yeah. you tell it? Because So I my it. friend Brian, he was saying that he got a text from a casting director that was like, hey, do you realize you had a, a callback today for Into the Woods? He's like, what? I had, a, like, it's already passed. It's gone. He said, cue the, the dramatic organ. And he said, no, but I can be there in 15 minutes. Again, waking up, not thinking he's going to sing anything today or do a callback, but he's like, no, I can be there right now. So he had done enough prep. He knew the show and he actually went in for this callback, like totally unprepared for it, like for the day, even though he had done musical work. Um, And he sang for multiple roles in the callback and he ended up getting cast. And this was his first equity contract, even on top of all of that. 
And I was like, so impressed because how many days do I wake up? And I'm like, this is just the day I'm going to get through X, Y, and Z on my list. And if somebody said like, you got to come in and show us your best. I don't, I'm not always ready to do that. You know, I'm like, this is the day I'm going to phone it in. And thank God he didn't say that. He's like, this is the day where I'm going to pull myself together because I get this amazing message. I'm like, I can be there. I'm going to do it. I know the show inside and out. And he does it so well that he actually gets into the show. It's amazing. I asked him, I said, now, Brian, I know you're a responsible person. Why didn't you know you had a callback? Like he's very, he's like an organizer. He is like a producer where he's the one sending messages on different projects. And he knows like email is so important. And he said their email went to my spam folder. Mm. So he actually went back in, looked at a spam folder and found the message. So y'all lesson to the wise lesson to the wise. That's not what the phrase is. I don't even word to the wise. There you go. Word to the wise. Check your spam folders if you're expecting correspondence from people that you might not know or get emails from very often, especially people that are sending out mass emails, right? That might mm-hmm. send messages to like 20 people back, you know, that are going to be called back for something. Oh, my heart just broke for him. But I mean, it turned out good. So, you know, and I think too, it's such a good reminder for performers that like, Even when you feel unprepared, you have to remember that you have built up a lifetime of training, Mm. right? And that you have to remember that you can count on all all that good muscle memory and work and preparation that you've spent years crafting. And that's when that stuff, you know, comes into play and really helps you. Now, what like, to me, what's extra impressive about this is he was auditioning for Into the Woods. And as we know, Into the Woods is a Sondheim show. Yes. And Sondheim is not casual. (laughs) No, really? It's not casual? I can't just like play some one, four, five chords and like do that audition? (laughs) It's not not casual for the pianist. Mm -hmm. It's It's not casual for uh the singer it's not casual for anybody i mean it's such specific detail-oriented music and i know that um uh your good friend mitzi wrote in that she actually once auditioned for a sondheim show she she comes into the audition room guess who's at the piano who the music director for the show that's a good sign good sign right so like the person who is in charge of the music for the Sondheim show is at the piano. So like, this is good. You know, she, she brings in a Sondheim piece, which is usually correct for a Sondheim show. And the pianist couldn't play it. Yeah. I don't even know how that happens. Like, how are you music directing a show if you can't play the repertoire of that composer? Well, and I know you and I were, were discussing recently, like we, we were talking about Sondheim songs and how most pianists come up with like a hack for some of the more difficult songs, like Marry Me a Little. You just kind of come up with your groove and then you stick with it. But I can guarantee like the first time any pianist looked at the score of Marry Me a Little, they did not play it right. <laughs> yeah, I thought we'd have a lot of Sondheim stories because it's like 
one of those things that everybody talks about, like don't bring in a Sondheim piece for anything, unless you're doing Sondheim specifically. Jason Robert Brown is in the same category. Don't bring in a Jason Robert Brown. And I kind of feel like, I think you're going to have a variety of quality or level experience level of accompanists. And so you need to choose your Sondheim pieces wisely. And unfortunately for Mitzi, she did choose wisely. She was auditioning for a show and that music director was behind the piano and she had to sing her Sondheim piece a cappella. I mean, it's sort of a brutal right. story. We have another Sondheim story. So I want to bring this in. Um, my friend Robert was auditioning for Assassins. Okay. And it called for 32 bars of Sondheim. They're like, bring in Sondheim people. That's what they're telling. So he's going in for John Hinckley, who sings Unworthy of Your Love. And so he brings in the song, No More, from Into the Woods. No more, ba-da. right? That one. I never know the words, but I can give you the melody. And so he walks up to the pianist and he says, okay, so this is No More. And the pianist says, never heard it. Uh, oh, can I, can I just interject? Yeah. I would never admit that. <laughs> it like for me in those moments, I, I, the like people pleaser in me, probably my ego. I don't ever want to admit. I just be like, mm-hmm, yeah. Right. Yeah. You don't have to say that part out loud. You just know in your head, mm-hmm. I don't know this. So I should really listen to these instructions. Right. Cause you don't want the poor singer to be like, oh God, they don't know it. They've never heard it. Not, I haven't played this. I've never heard it. Anywho, so he tells him the tempo and the rhythm and the accompanist says, I got it. And so he goes up, he does his monologue, he's ready to sing. So he gives the head nod, right? And the accompanist starts playing and then he sings the first line, no more giants. And then there's supposed to be like a bling, right? A chord. There's no chord. He doesn't play anything. So Robert just keeps singing the next line, waging war. And then there's a chord but it's totally not the right chord. And if you know when you're singing with Sondheim, the chords are very specific. There's dissonances in them that totally make sense and help your melody fit. And when you don't get the right chord, it can be very disorienting. So Mm -hmm. he struggles through the rest of the song. God bless him. And then the director asks him to sing it again, but he asks the pianist not to play. Like heartbroken for the pianist. That's brutal. Cause that's your worst nightmare behind the piano is that you're so bad that the director is like, I need to hear the song again without you accompanist. And then luckily Robert got to sing it again. Right. And sort of try, but, but it's, it's this sort of like sweeping ballad with no of nothing of the orchestral or the like harmonic underscore that like helps the feelings feel so emotional. Right. It's, I just, it's so brutal. I have to wonder though. I mean, listen, that would if if I were that pianist, I would feel sick in that moment. Because I I would also be coming from a place of like just feeling knowing I'm not doing a great job. You know what I mean? Like knowing I'm off, but I have to wonder like did that pianist have like a little relief that they didn't have to play it again cuz part of me would be like if the director was like let's do it one more time I'd be like please no more of this please hellscape please no more yeah exactly <laughs> oh yeah definitely probably relieved and mortified and humiliated at the same time but again why are they hiring somebody asking people to bring in Sondheim it's sort of like you need to check your accompanist be like hey this is a Sondheim show we're asking people to bring it in is that like 
a genre that you feel comfortable playing. And to me, if someone's going in to play a Sondheim audition and you've never heard the music to Into the Woods, Mm -hmm. I'm a little bit suspect about what you're doing behind that piano. But I mean, I would also say in like pianist's defense, we are not really taught this skill. Right. It's a learning on the job kind of situation. It is. I mean, you're 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 taught that sight reading is important, but the first time you play for auditions is a is a real world experience. But like you were just saying, like Sondheim is so specific. And I think more and more in musical theater, like genre is getting so specific, right? And so as pianists, it's not just like you need to be good with, you know, golden age and and pop. Like there's all kinds of different genres of musicals now. There really are, right? yeah. Especially with like hip hop and Latin and all of these kinds of musics that are making their way onto stages, not just jukebox mm-hmm. musicals, but like original shows that are going to incorporate jazz, Latin, folk, hip hop, into the musical theater genres that we already know. Uh, My friend Melissa was telling me about she auditioned back when like um, In the Heights had just come out and people didn't know that score yet. And if you're a pianist, like that score is hard. We don't really grow up playing Montuno sort of right hand arrangements. The rhythms need to be locked in for the vocals to work. Like Latin music, if you guys aren't familiar, Everybody has one piece, one thing that they do, usually repeatedly. And when you put all of these rhythms and all these pieces together, you get the iconic sound of that Latin groove, right? So everybody has to know what their little element is. But when you're playing a piano part, you're sort of combining all of those things and you're responsible for making them come together. And they're not even what you would play if you were just the pianist in a Latin group, right? That would be less. So then she comes in with this score. Sorry, she is performing at Unifieds. And Unifieds are um, where all the colleges will come to like a hotel in LA or New York. And you as a vocalist, when you're auditioning for college, you can go and audition for like 10 colleges on one day without having to go to visit all of those different places, right? So it's it's interesting. I have played for Unifieds in Los Angeles. Um, It's cool because you get to meet like faculty and staff from all over. You get to hear what the talent level is and what programs they're auditioning for. Anyway, that's a side story. But so she brings in, it won't be long now, right? 16 bars before that score is very well known to anybody. And she just sort of assumed that the accompanist would be able to play it. And if you guys don't recall, in, um, it won't be long now is the one that starts right? Like that's just the rhythm. I'm not even really giving you a very good melody. And so she's like ready. She is Latina, by the way. Um, I think she's part Puerto Rican. Is that correct? I, Melissa, don't put me on blast. I'm going from a very vague memory I have of you telling me about that. Um, so she's like starting to sway. She's ready for her merengue. And the pianist starts playing this very slow, almost like lounge swing intro with, with it sort of has like a vague feeling of what that melody line is, but but not even really what it is. And so she said that she muddled through it sounded nothing like the original song. She basically had to improvise a lounge singer version. And she said she got so distracted when she's supposed to get to the money note of riding away, 
right? She said, instead of it being a money note, big belty thing, it was this breathy, like Nora Jones-esque quality. Away, yeah, right? <laughs> and not the mix that she had rehearsed at all. And she said she did not get any callbacks, any invite, but that it was a really good lesson in bringing something that's more familiar for a pianist. And I remember when that score came out and knowing that that was going to be one of the songs that all the gals were going to bring in. And I was like, all right, Corey, let's sit down and learn this. It's like what we were saying that you just can't prepare for this stuff. So it's like coming up with your groove for the Sondheim songs. Maybe you come up with your In the Heights bag of tricks. But that like Melissa's story is so hard for me, you know, emotionally, because my gosh, like... It's, I don't know. Listen, it's of course like theater auditions are important, but like a college audition, the stakes couldn't be higher for that because that's not just auditioning for a show. That's auditioning for four years of your life. Yeah, the right? whole trajectory like, of where you're going to go next. And then to also be like 17 when you're doing it without all of the skills that you acquire in the industry. Like sometimes you can say, you know what, I'd like to stop and start again or you know, like some, I've had people do that if I've butchered it or if I'm watching an audition and, or you have your way of sort of like starting to groove so the pianist can see you. There's all these things as an actor that you, you do to try to like save the song as you're in it. Right. Or sometimes you just barrel on singing the way that it's supposed to be and you leave the pianist in the dust, but she's 17 years old. She like hasn't acquired these skills yet of how to manipulate over at the piano and so she just does her best, again, to improvise and to make it the most musical performance she can with the kind of accompaniment she's being given. Bless her soul. Mm -hmm. She is the sweetest, sweetest person, voice teacher, voice coach, and is now like, you know, distilling all of her experience into wisdom that she gives her students. I mean, this is just the classic, the classic example. You bring it in and the pianist just butchers it for you. Sorry, guys, we it's a tough job, like Catherine said. <laughs> well, right. And I mean, we're coming from our our shared experiences is, is from behind the piano, but it's it's terrifying for everybody, you know, and I would say, like, if there are people listening to this podcast that feel a little uncomfortable, like giving a tempo to a pianist, what I always say is like, you don't have to be fluent in music theory. Some of the best cues I'm ever given is where a singer just like taps the rhythm, right? And they're just like, so this song is like, and like, if I just hear that, I'm like, got it. Yeah. Like I 100% understand the groove of this right now. So like, I think a lot of times singers should, can have and should have more confidence. If you can just sort of model for the pianist what you're going for, that's more helpful than just being like, this piece is in this time signature and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, we need, if it's a song we're not familiar with, hearing what that groove is, is going to the, be the best way. Um, I have one audition I'm just remembering where I totally played it wrong and I felt so embarrassed because it doesn't look hard on the, on the page. I haven't even told you this. And I have heard the music and I saw the show live and it was from Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet. And it's the song, what's the song? The moon. And it's, Ugh, like I can't even remember the name of it. -na -da -na -da -na -da -na. You guys listening, you know what it is. And it has this weird like hemiola pattern. So 
when you're just listening to it, you think like, oh, that's what it is. But when you see it on the page, it sort of goes against everything in your music reading brain. You're like, the time signature is this. And that doesn't look like it should be in that time signature. And so I was having the hardest time finding the groove, even while I was talking to the person, because their part doesn't do what the piano part does. So like, they can't sing my part to me. They don't really know how it goes. And it was just a really awkward ungroovy, not locked run through of this song with the singer doing their darndest to try to perform. Like it's like such a sensitive, heartbreaking ballad. And I was like, "Eh, eh, eh, eh," over at the piano, (laughs) it was the worst. If that's you, if you're listening to this, I apologize. (laughs) I don't remember who it was, but I remember it being really painful. I like the sentence. If that's you, I apologize. (laughs) Um, Wow, we're really off topic. This will probably be cut. Let's go to the next yeah, story. Sure. Um, so the next story is another audio clip of my friend Tim telling his story. Um, okay, he recorded this on his voice memo while walking around New York. So you're going to hear a little bit of background New York. That's just for ambiance to make us all feel like we're there, right? We're in the story. And I just want to say he was auditioning for the national tour of Annie. Okay, so that is, I'm setting the scene. That is what he's auditioning for. Here is Tim telling his story. All right, this is for the National Tour of Annie. I'm auditioning and final callbacks for replacements for the tour. And I'm in final callbacks with none other than B. Martin Sharnan. As you may know, he uh, wrote the lyrics and um, directed the original 1977 version of Annie. This thing is his big moneymaker. It is his life. So anyway, I was so intimidated because Martin Sheridan expected you to sing to him for the audition, which we were all prompted and we all knew about. You never really are quite ready for that. So anyway, I come in and I bring um, She Loves Me from She Loves Me as my go-to song, which fits very well. And I start singing and I'm looking at the man at my cut. And she just immediately stopped me. He's like, no, 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 no. You can't do it there. You, 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 go back a little bit. That's just too, too much. You can't just start on that note. So I go to the pianist, and I give him a, um, a different cut, which went a little bit back. But I was so nervous, I kept stumbling, and I couldn't remember what the, um, the lyrics were. So Martin Sharn stopped me another time. He was like, all right, all right, you know what? Just, just sing the whole song. You got the whole song? Sing the whole song. I, I, you know, these cuts don't make any sense to me. Now, I haven't sang that song in its entirety for anybody since grad school. So I was like, oh, I wonder if I still got these lyrics. And then I thought, oh, my God, I wonder if I still have this whole song in my book. Fortunately, I sometimes overplan, and it worked in my favor. I had the whole uh, song. And I continue to sing that four-and-a-half-minute song directly to Martin Sharnan. He laughed. Everybody laughed. I did forget a few lyrics here and there, and I repeated a few, which he very well caught. And it was over. And I didn't get the role. Flash forward a year after that, and they call me back in because the person that beat me out for that role decided he wanted to leave the tour before his contract was over. So they called me and a whole bunch of other people in. And then I sang Not She Loves Me, 
but once in love with Amy. And Martin Sean and I had a great conversation about Frank Lesser. And then I got the role. But no joke, that man is scary AF in the audition room. And then he was my director for a year and a half, which also was scary too. <laughs> Isn't that a great story? Oh, so many layers to that. Like, I have had the experience of having to perform for a composer, a writer, a director, somebody who is like created the work. Mm -hmm. Some people might get a thrill from that and think it's an honor. It fills me with terror. Like, how do you feel about that? Like, well, if I've worked on a fair amount of readings or workshops. So, you know, that's the arranger and the composer giving me their stuff. And then I'm laying it on the, the, you know, the, who are they? Not the crew, the singers and the actors, the cast. And that feels maybe not as scary because it's really like a relationship and you're working together. But yeah, I, this would be terrifying. Like the person whose name is on your sheet music is now the one sitting behind the table and not just like as a passive, like, oh, I'm going to sit on all these auditions for this show that somebody else is directing. No, he's directing the tour because this is like his show that he does now for his life is directing and keeping all these Annie productions sort of in shape. And he's commenting on the cut you've oh chosen. God. Yeah. That would like, I mean, this is why I, 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 I'm not cut out for this life, right? Like I, some people would like take that note and go with it. I would be like, well, I guess this performing life isn't for me. And then to have to sing the whole song because, you know, singers have their they have their cut down and the, and the cut becomes the song. Right. It's it becomes its own thing. So to then have to do this whole song and I'm sorry, just to like keep building on this that you're supposed to look him in the eye because I, and that's, you know, that's a whole other topic to discuss. Like, where do you look? And it can be uncomfortable. Yeah. Sing a cut you haven't sung in five years that you don't remember all the specificity of your acting beats. You don't know all the lyrics. And I want you to look me directly in the eye while you do it. I mean, Tim, you are my hero. You are like such a brave, brave soul to then just roll with it and do it. And yeah, that fact that he's like criticizing the cut. No, you can't start there. Like, obviously, this is after grad school. Tim has studied this, right? Like studied the history of musical theater, done so many different cuts of songs and all that. And now it's like, why did you choose that version? Like just to have that in your heart while then you have to now sing again for him for the third time <laughs> starting your audition. Right. And it's not like he was like, hey, I, it would make more sense to start eight bars sooner. He's like, you know, instead of you singing for 15 seconds, let's do four yeah. minutes. And and you now know that I have a lot of opinions. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, but keep looking at me in the eye. Now, I will say Tim performs she loves this song, She Loves Me, so well. I accompanied him on this on this song many times because we went to grad school together and he's just like so fun and witty and charming and like zany in his performance. So I'm actually really glad that they got to see the whole thing because that I believe is why he got called back one year later, right? When the person who did get the role decided they didn't want to finish out their contract. I mean, this happens, right? Like you may think something went terribly awry, 
but you leave an impression. And then a year later, you're just going about your business and they're like, oh, we still have that person's information. Let's bring him back. And then he said, I don't know if everybody caught it. He changed his song. He sang, um, he sang Once in Love with Amy from the show Where's Charlie? And um, the person who made that song famous is Ray Bolger, who played the scarecrow in the movie of The Wizard of Oz. So it's this very like fun, charming, light, sweet kind of piece. Again, a song that he just nails. And then he says he had this conversation with Martin Sharnan. And they're talking about Frank Lesser and they're getting to appreciate the music, right? And like how cool of a turnaround from that first experience to this callback. Which is why also, I mean, it's that idea of never doubt all, you know, your 10,000 hours, right? All the preparation you've put in and that auditions, even if if it feels like it it went poorly or you don't get the gig, you just don't know where things lead. And I love stories like that. You know, um, this idea of like, who's who's in the room with you, it just reminds me of a story that my friend Lauren uh, submitted, which is, so she was in grad school and it was, it was sort of like a jury, you know, where she was talking to an advisor and her advisor says to her, are you aware of the casting couch? <laughs> and have you decided what you're willing to do for a job? And then he asked to discuss her thoughts on that. And she needed this guy to sign her paperwork to graduate. And it is that is such an uncomfortable, loaded situation. And I hope, hope, hope in this era of like me too and accountability that this kind of stuff starts to happen less and less. Um, but these stories are really common as well. Yeah, this is a totally different um, take on an audition horror story, right? I mean, this is her jury. This is her her thing she's doing to prove that she has learned what she needs to learn and she can move on and acquire her degree, right? She's put in all of this work. She's to be commended for her studies. And this this person who is one of the gatekeepers to her getting her recognition brings up, what are you willing to do? And I mean, I think everybody listening to this understands what we're talking about, but basically the casting couch being, are you going to sleep with me to prove that you want this? Right. And, and to bring that into like, maybe we wouldn't be surprised if this was actually in the entertainment industry, if this was in LA, like, auditioning for TV or a movie, but that this is in academia and somebody's holding this over a student. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. I know. I commend Lauren on sharing the story yeah. and she's also like such a badass, but I know people have, you know, and it's not just women, men have these stories too. Mm -hmm. It's, it's rampant and it's being called out more and more and, Everybody, you know, and it's the kind of thing, like the more people that speak up, the more people that will speak up. Yeah. You know, it's, it's refreshing to see that there is a wave of accountability that is sort of being, uh, I'm mixing my metaphors, but just that there is a wave of ac accountability sort of sweeping through theater right now, all the way up to Broadway. And I mean, I think unions have one part to play in it, right? Because they're protecting their mm -hmm. actors and, 
And then there are the unions that producers are a part of as well and directors, and they can be held accountable through their unions, um, reprimanded or not able to produce or do things like that. But then there's also just the accountability of people saying, I don't want to work with somebody who's like that, right? And them not being hired, not because a union tells them they're not supposed to, but just because somebody says, that's not what I value. And I don't want to bring that kind of person into my production or onto my stage or whatever it is. Um, I think there's been a lot of bad behavior that has been swept under the rug, that's been in back rooms that nobody's been able to see, and bad behavior by people with power. And it's time for that reckoning. I'm glad that it's happening. Right. And the, and the norm was to not share it and to stuff it. And I think it's very different now. You know, yeah. I think Lauren is around my age-ish. And, you know, I think if that had happened now – in this climate, she might have felt more empowered, you know, but things were very different. I mean, things were very different even five years yeah. ago. So, I mean, it's like the change can't happen soon enough, but also it's going to take a minute. But I do think we're on, we're on, we're on the right, like up and up trajectory. Yeah, exactly. And this is one way that we're helping is telling this story, right? So that people that might listen to this, who find themselves in that situation can be like, oh, shoot, that's not okay, and I do need to speak out and need to go above this person's head and talk to their superior, right? Yeah, well, thank you, Lauren, for sharing that and, and uh, you know, just sending, sending love to people out there listening who have experienced it. Um, you are certainly not alone. You know, and it, and it also, I mean, I'm going to kind of shift gears now, but it, it, it also just speaks to the thing that we keep talking about this whole episode, right? Is like the thick skin performers need to have. And you and I, you know, our personal stories revolve around being behind the piano. Well, I have had one sort of a non-piano audition in my life. Okay. I don't even know this. I'm excited to hear what this is. This was a surprise. Gosh, it was so hard and different. So a couple of years ago, minding my own business. And all of a sudden I start getting texts and people are like sending me a screenshot of this audition notice. And it's for a Kia commercial and they're looking for a guitar player. Well, for those of you who don't know, I, in my comedy for years, I've played a guitar. And so it's, it's something that I'm, you know, in my tiny little universe, a little bit known for. And so if if all these actor friends of mine see this audition notice, I need a guitar player, oh my gosh, it's Catherine, it's Catherine, it's Catherine. So I'm like, oh my gosh. So I like, you know, I like rearrange my day. I call our mutual friend, Wendy Rosoff. I'm like, what how do I audition? What do I wear? What do I do? Mm. And she she thankfully was available, gave me blow by blow. So I'm starting to feel kind of good, you know, put on my makeup. I'm like, this is exciting. You know, we're performers. This is sort of what we thrive on, right? So I, I put on a cool kind of edgy outfit and eye makeup and all this stuff. And I grab my guitar and I go to Santa Monica where this audition is happening. And I'm like, I, I'm already thinking about what the paycheck is going to oh be. God. <laughs> like, you right? got, how many guitar players are there? You're going to get this gig. That's the thing. That's exactly right. How many guitar players are there? So I show up to this audition place and I've never been in like an audition, uh, like a commercial audition space. There are several auditions happening in several different rooms. And one of them was like for a kid's commercial. So all these like actor kids mm -hmm. who are super professional. So I walk in with my white Roland Axe 
Kitar, and I spot another Roland White Axe Kitar. I spot another one. So only two, right? But it's two more than I thought. (laughs) So fine. So I'm waiting. I'm getting nervous. I'm getting nervous. And I luckily, like the audition, you know, it's like I'm accompanying myself. I know exactly what to play. Like Mm -hmm. I have this 80 medley I do in my shows. It shows a lot of versatility. And then at the end, I sort of do this like Jimi Hendrix, like like Star Spangled Banner thing. Killer, right? So I know I can shred. Like I'm feeling fine about that. So I get in and it's just weird. I mean, I've never done this. You're in this room. And speaking of casting couches, there literally is a couch in the corner and it's five people who I imagine are like the ad agency and maybe somebody from Kia. I don't know how this works. And they're behind a big television screen. So they're watching me on camera. They're not Mm. even watching me live. It's like a, 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 what's it called? Like a screen test at the same time that it's an audition of your skills. Yeah, I'm doing a screen test. I don't know what I'm doing. So I, and and I'm very much a live performer, you know, so I'm, it's sort of weird. I don't know who, where to look. Am I looking at them sort of like around the TV, whatever? So I play, I play, I play. And they're like, oh, that was awesome. Cause it was, you know, it's good. I know how to play my guitar. And then they're like, great. Now we're going to have you dance. (laughs) (laughs) Like without the guitar, like take off the guitar. No, with the guitar. So I'm like, okay, do you want me to just, like, what do you, and here's the thing, like, I'm, like, comfortable-ish in my body. Take me, you know, at a wedding, I will cut a rug. Um, I also have plantar fasciitis. I don't want to be on my feet for too long. Um, (laughs) So they're like, no, 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 we're going to play a song. So this song starts, and it's sort of like techno country. And I really don't know how to move to this. So I like have my guitar on and I think I just sort of do this little sidestep. And I, again, I don't know where to look. I'm like probably like looking like off camera in some weird way. Here's why I know it was bad. I dance for about five seconds and somebody from behind the TV goes, hey <laughs> What does that even mean? Like, this is ridiculous. It means you are such a dork. Your dancing is dorky. (laughs) And the only response is for me to somewhat mock you. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Listen, if you see a good dance performance, you don't go, oh, you're like, like you lean in, right? I, oh, God. So they wanted you to improvise to music that they then put on. Yeah. And you didn't get to just hear like, the They just like put it on and you're like, go. Yeah. They weren't like, hey, this is a country techno show us, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Like we're looking for just basic like sidestep kind of movements with your guitar to know, like they didn't give you any direction. Not only did they not give me any direction, there was never any indication that dance would be a, a component of this audition. I'm like Catherine, the pianist who happens to be going in for a commercial playing my guitar, oh which I'm like, which I'm great at. It was so Awkward. They were super nice, I will say. And, oh, and I should also say, the guy who played guitar before me, he hadn't brought an amp, and I lent him my amp. Oh, you're so generous. And they, well, of course, and they were like, they were like, hey, that was so nice. Like, they were really, they were very kind, <laughs> except for, ayo. 
So the person must have been so uncomfortable that they had to like vocalize. No, you know, I did not feel free in that moment. <laughs> I did not feel creative physical freedom. So um, you didn't get it. Long story short, I did not book Ugh. it. Um, here's what's funny. So I I see the ad like three months later. And it was everybody in hamster costumes. Oh my god! Not, not dancing, by the way. So that's what I wasn't qualified. All right, let's move on to our next story. <laughs> All right, so this last story comes from uh, my friend Beth Malone, who y'all might know from such Broadway shows like Ring of Fire and um, Fun Home and Angels in America. And she's also been doing, not on Broadway, but the unsinkable Molly Brown, Brown, Brown. And she's also working on a new show with one half of the Indigo Girls. And she's like writing a show, which is fantastic. Um, so she, I texted her and was like, Beth, I know you've got something delicious up your sleeve. You've been in so many situations. She's also a bit of a comedian. And so this is the story that she shared. This one's a little bit longer. So just settle in and enjoy Beth. Hi, this is Beth Malone. And um, I'm here to talk to you about the, my worst audition ever, which, you know, it's hard to narrow it down to just one, but because um, I've had some pretty, pretty horrible auditions throughout my entire career, but there is one that stands out as the absolute worst. Of all my really bad ones, they all have something to do with dancing. And so this particular one that I'm going to tell you about, um, I was called back for the role of Nellie Forbush in the Lincoln Center production of, um, what is it? It's, it's, South Pacific. God, it took me forever. I'm so old. Okay, so South Pacific. Kelly O'Hara got pregnant, and they, you know, they needed someone to take over the role when she got too pregnant to do a cartwheel. And so I, I went in, but not for that role. I had gone in for like one of the nurses. One of the nurses was leaving and was going to be replaced, but no one knew that Kelly O'Hara was pregnant, and they were really looking for Anella Forbush too. So I went in to audition for the nurse, and they started looking at me for Nellie, and they had me sing, and then they called me back, and all this stuff, and I, there was a scheduling problem with the callback. So I could only come back during a certain time and they was like fine fine we're gonna see we're seeing people that day so show up and when I got there it was callbacks for the nurse and and everybody was like tall and in tights and character shoes and leotards and leg warmers and there were like these fierce dancers well I had a friend in the show my friend Liz McCartney had taught me some of the actual choreography from the actual production. So I was like, okay. She was like, here's here's these here's these two numbers that the nurses do. So you learn this set of steps and you're gonna be golden. Got there and I'm wearing Converse tennis shoes and cut off um, jean shorts. You know, an excellent costume if you were auditioning for Nellie Forbush, if you're gonna get called back to sing wonderful guy, you'd look adorable in your cut off jean shorts and your Converse tennis shoes. But they put me in with the Broadway dancer callbacks and started teaching me this hellacious combination that had nothing to do with the combination Liz McCartney had taught me. And I tried. This is where 
it, it becomes tragic. I tried. I tried really hard to learn it. I tried really hard. And then it became a thing where they were moving on. They were teaching the next eight and I hadn't learned the last eight. And then they were teaching the next eight and I was two eights behind. And I was like, is it left? or right you turn and you put your weight on the what and they had moved so far beyond my my skill set by then it was just I was a sinking ship and I was I was just going down in this just bloody pile of showbiz goo and it was like there was nothing that could save me and then they said okay we're gonna break you up into little groups and a five six seven eight and I kicked the girl next to me and um and then it it was like it was so humiliating it was like this massively humiliating thing and I was just like I was I was out in the hallway and I called my agent I was like this is a dumpster fire there's nothing there I'm not supposed to be here and all the thing. And he was like, well, aren't they going to have you sing? And I was like, well, I don't know. And then they put me in this big, long line afterwards. And they were like, um, okay, eight bars. And I was like, eight bars. Somehow I got to sing. I don't remember this, the sequence of events, but in, at some point I got to sing eight bars. And I was like, this is not the audition I'm not supposed to be in this audition I'm in the wrong audition and so I left before <laughs> before and and they were calling my name I was out in the hallway talking to my agent and I could hear them saying uh, Beth Malone Beth Malone and I was walking down the hallway um Oh God, there's more to this. There's more to this story. It was like at Ripley Greer and I'd showed up, you know, in the converse and then I saw everybody had character shoes. So I said, is there any lost and found? And I found these shitty, like beat up pointy heeled character shoes that had, that were like made out of, they weren't made of leather. They were made of like some kind of plastic. So I was wearing, I was just, it was so bad. There was, there was nothing worse than this day in the history of showbiz I can I can tell you it was it was a catastrophe um you know the only good thing about any of it was that I went on to have a career and I went on to work because if that had been the last audition I'd ever gone to I would have been scarred for life um so the only thing redemptive about the whole thing is that um the work that I did later kind of seemed to erase that audition, but it it would have been one of those things that if I was 80 years old, I would sit straight up in the middle of the night and go <gasps> like nightmare. It was the stuff of nightmares. So that is it. That's not, that's the worst audition I ever had. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Bye. Oh, what a story. <laughs> it's like the definition of my worst nightmare, having to go in, in a dance call thinking she had even tried to prepare she had somebody in the show that gave her the inside scoop okay i'm not a dancer but i'll work on those choreo that choreography from the show and then it's not even the choreography from the show and that just getting behind more and more and feeling like how am i ever gonna get out of this and then she's like i'm in the wrong audition i'm not supposed to be here I, I, my heart just breaks for her going through this. It feels like an in-person anxiety dream because in those moments, time stands still. Like 
And I'm sure she felt, you could hear it in her voice, like the stress is still there, you know? Like, like when do I leave? Do I keep going? And then that feeling of being behind in the day, because yeah. choreo is, you know, I could tell, you know, I don't know if you know this, I once auditioned for a Kia commercial. Is it? <laughs> Choreography is so hard. It's not just like you pick it up in a new spot. It's like if if you're shifting your weight wrong, you're on the left or right. And then it's no surprise that she like kicked somebody. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Beth is so lovely and so smart and so ta- talented. And she just, you know, she's just telling the story, but only Beth Malone would say the phrase, a bloody pile of showbiz goo. It's so <laughs> and good. I, and I feel like that is now going to become part of the vernacular when talking about horror stories of any kind. I just oh think gosh. like a, a sort of final takeaway from hers, which is so important, is that even a pro has so many auditions. And she says that at the beginning, you know, it's not just, not like, here's my bad audition story. She's like, here's one of them. And this is the worst one. But I'm sure even somebody as accomplished and talented as as Beth Malone, who who is not just talented, but like innately talented, like she just walks through the world as somebody who's really equipped to to yeah. to be a performer, you know. And as she says, like if if I had never had a career, that would have been like devastating. Yeah, she did have a career, and you know, and it, it, again, it's that you know, thick skin. You have to be resilient, but man, are these moments just terrifying. She did tell me this was after she was in Ring of Fire on Broadway. Um, and I think she was in New York doing marvelous wonder, wonder, wonderlets, wonderettes. Um, but just that feeling like, when do I leave? Like you said, when is the time where I, I recognize, okay, I shouldn't be here because we hear these stories of like Tim persevering, right? Decided to stay, made it work, stepped outside of his comfort zone and was like, I don't know, but I'm in this room. So here I'm going to do it. And then other situations where you have to just sort of call a spade a spade and you're like, okay, this, this, none of this is going how it was meant to go. I thought I was going to just be called in and do my Nellie Forbush stuff, even though they knew they were doing nurses today, they were going to accommodate me. None of that happened. She calls her agent. She's trying to get like advice from the person that's helping her get work. And eventually just, she just has to say like, this is not it. I mean, it's the Lincoln Center performance of South Pacific. I mean, that's a big thing to have to say, this is too much. I just can't imagine like how devastating that must have felt. And like then walking down the hall, hearing your name being called and you're not even in your own shoes. Right. Oh, I, But side note, how resourceful to like go to a lost and found and ask like that. I don't know. I mean, I'm not in that world, but that seemed really amazing that that even occurred to her. But the idea yeah. that they're like plastic shoes, like plastic pointy oh, shoes. Yeah. I too was blown away by that. I thought that is a genius bit of advice to like take with you for your life. Like, oh, if I don't have something, look for the lost and found and see, like that could work in many situations. Um, Beth obviously went on to have like an amazing career, none of which she's known for her dancing in, but you know, she moves. I saw her do a performance or a show of, um, Annie, get your gun here in, in San Diego. And she definitely did some moving in that, but golly, I, I'm going to say this and I, maybe I'll edit out later, but I'm going to say this. One of my recurring nightmares about performing is nothing about singing. It's nothing about playing the piano. It's that the show mid show I'm backstage. It's my turn to go on next. 
and it's a dance number. And I, a solo dance number. I don't know what the choreography is and I have to improvise like an interpretive dance on stage. That is one of my recurring performance nightmares. And I don't know why it's in the world of dance. Isn't that funny? Where does that come from? Feeling ill-equipped to do something that people are calling on me to do? I don't know. I'm just analyzing that right now. I feel like that's most of my life, like putting myself in situations where I'm like, I don't know if I can do this, but I'm going to figure it out. So when she told the story, I was having that thought. Well, clearly you need to do some like choreography therapy, some choreotherapy. And like maybe you need to like do some Cassie chorus line um, work and like exercise exercise that from your system because that is so unusual I would not expect that to be your your recurring anxiety dream it's so bizarre um I don't like dancing everybody I just don't like it I don't like to dance at weddings in all situations of social dance I prefer to stay on the sidelines that's just a special peek into my heart for everybody today All righty, everybody. Thank you for submitting your stories. I was so glad that we got these great, great, varied, diverse stories. And thank you for those of you that um, sent in audio clips. Always nice to hear you telling your own stories and hearing that anxiety come back in as you're uh, retelling. Um, That's it. Catherine, any closing words today? Uh, Just you know, I, I hope that these stories, you know, they might bring out some anxiety. They might make you laugh. But like, if anything, know that as performers, you are never alone. You are not alone with these things. Hey, guys, just popping into the end. I just want to say thank you again for spending your time listening to this podcast. I know you have a million things you could be doing, and it means a lot that you're here with me. Um, I just have two things for you to wrap up this episode. Follow me on Instagram at Corey Yamaoka. I would love to get to know you. I'd love to chat with you and just get to know like who's listening to the show so that I can better serve you and find other topics that are interesting um, that you know are relatable and important for you in your performance journey or teaching journey, whichever side of it you're on. Um, and then number two, if you could just share this episode or share this podcast with a friend, um, if you've been finding that you enjoy the show, it's educational, it's, you know, it makes you feel like you have a sense of community, share it with a friend, send them a, um, what do you call it? A screenshot or send them the actual link to the podcast and let's just spread the love. And, um, be talking more about these things, auditioning, music preparation, and even silly things like audition horror stories where we can just sort of say like, hey, I was there too, right? All right, y'all. I hope you have a wonderful week, a happy Halloween, and I will see you next time right here on Studying the Song.